Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, March 1st, 2022, and it was on this day in 1789 the United States Constitution took effect. And being that the original inauguration day of presidents, according to the Constitution, was March 4th before they switched it, it was on this day that a number of U.S. presidents, including Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, were inaugurated. President Calvin Coolidge's inauguration was broadcast live on this day in 1925, coast to coast on 21 radio stations. It was also on this day in 1791 that Vermont became the 14th state of the United States, the first state after the original 13 colonies to come on and join the United States. It was also in this day that in 1888, Knut Rockne, Notre Dame University football coach was born in Voss, Norway. And it was also on this day in 1952 that Ronald Reagan was married to his wife Nancy in San Fernando, California. But this week, as I mentioned last week, in which I decided to allow myself to be distracted about with the um, invasion of Russia in Ukraine, I said this week I was going to talk a little bit about a uh, subject that I enjoy, which is history, and in a way combine all three themes of this podcast, faith, hope, and history, and look at a question many people continue to debate today, although I'm not sure there's really much of a debate, and that is the historicity of the Holy Scriptures, and in particular, the history presented in the Old Testament. Now, when it comes to answering the question, is the Bible historical, I like to answer that in both ways. The answer is both, yes and no. It's not historical as we understand history, you know, the relating of facts and the understanding of events as they occurred with exact dates, names, and places. But rather, it is, however, a product of history. It came out of a historical period and reflects that historical period. And of course, as scripture has universal appeal and message for all people of all times, especially people of faith, but also in many ways to humanity in general as well. But it's a little different from the mythologies that non-believers like to compare it to, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh and the uh, Epics of Homer or the Aeneid by Virgil and so on. The Bible was written with faith in mind. But it's a product of history. It emerged out of a certain period of history and was not necessarily written as that history it conveys took place. It wasn't written during the time of David. We didn't see the finished product coming out after the time of Solomon. But rather, the writers looked back on the history of Israel and wrote it through the lens of faith in order to provide a cautionary tale for its people in telling the story of its past. So it wasn't concerned with history as we know history today, but rather history as a lesson. In many ways, a literal 
embodiment of the phrase, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. They learned from their history, and they wrote that history through the lens of what they learned. And what were they giving warning about? Well, the period out of which many believe the writing of the scriptures as we know it was the period after the Babylonian exile, as the people were returning from 70 years, according to tradition, of the Jewish nation being away from the promised land in exile in Babylon before King Cyrus of Persia, also known as Cyrus the Great, allowed them to return. Upon returning, they had the task of reestablishing Judaism, reestablishing uh, Jerusalem and the temple worship, and bringing about a restored identity for the people, but also the lessons that they learned from their history. And it was at this time, many scholars believe, that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were compiled in the mid to late 5th or 6th century. Roughly 539 was when the people returned from exile, 539 BC. And looking back on their history, a group of prophets, guild prophets, if you will, not the prophets who we know in the Bible itself, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on, many of those worked and preached before the exile, and their works and prophecies were compiled and and saved. But in this period post-exile, bringing to the people a restored sense of identity, the prophets retold the story, and in writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God, developed these works that came to be recognized as inspired scripture, both by the Jewish people and by Christian people. And they retell the history through that lens of faith and the lessons learned from history. And so what do we have, especially in the historical books? The Pentateuch establishes, the, of course, the genesis of humanity and the genesis of God calling Abraham and him being the father of the people. But it really accentuates the event of the Exodus and God forming the nation in the desert with Moses and the books of the law. When we get to the book of Deuteronomy, it's in many ways a comprehensive catechism, if you will, of the law and the history of Israel coming out of the Exodus, coming out of the desert post-Exodus, but also in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses speaks prophetically in warning of what will happen to the people of Israel if they are not faithful to this covenant and to the law that God has given them. Now, the story of the book of Deuteronomy is even actually told in the books of Kings, And in chapter 22 of the second book of Kings, and its corresponding passage in the book of Chronicles, during the reign of Josiah, it speaks of finding the book of the law in the temple while it's being restored following the fall of Assyria. This is in the 22nd chapter and following chapters of the second book of Kings. And many relate that book of the law to, I believe, chapters 12 to 22 of the book of Deuteronomy. And that period of reform is known as the 
Deuteronomic reform that occurred in 622 BC under the reign of King Josiah. And so being written and compiled and ultimately drafted as we know it now after the exile along with the rest of the Pentateuch, even Moses as a character takes part in that effort of the guild prophets who put together the scriptures, who wrote the history of Israel upon the return of exile, even Moses is included in that prophetic voice warning the people of what will happen if and when they don't follow the law and be faithful to the covenant that they share with God. Looking in hindsight, we see, oh, as far as the character was concerned, Moses was right. But as far as the writing and compiling of the book of Deuteronomy is concerned, they're also looking back on their history and seeing this is why we fell into exile, because we were unfaithful to the covenant, we violated our pact with God, and sold ourselves to paganism. But in the so-called historical books, which include what are called the four books of kings, which we know now as the first and second books of Samuel and the first and second book of Kings, we see in that a very epic cautionary tale that can basically be renamed the rise and the fall, not just of the nation of Israel, but specifically the monarchy of Israel. Because starting with the first book of Samuel, we have the choice by God through Samuel of the first king in Saul, how he was replaced by David, who was succeeded by his son Solomon. And then after the death of Solomon, the split in the kingdom in which 10 tribes go north, forming the northern kingdom of Israel. And two tribes remain south, loyal to Jerusalem, loyal to the family of David, forming the southern kingdom of Judah, the inhabitants of which are known as the Jews. So we have that whole story in the first and second books of Samuel and the first and second books of Kings, and that whole epic story ends with the exile, the final destruction of the nation of Israel. So it's not a happy tale. It's a very tragic tale about the downward spiral of the people of Israel and the kingdom of Israel encompassed in the leadership of the kings that led from greatness under the first three kings to eventual schism, conquest by Assyria in the north in which those ten tribes disappeared into history and became the ten lost tribes of Israel in 722 B.C., And ultimately, in 587 BC, the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah in the Babylonian exile. But even more, I want to concentrate on the first two books of Samuel and the history, quote-unquote, that they present in the first two kings and then eventually in the third king in the first half of the first book of Kings. And what do we have in these first three kings? We have, in many ways, a general personification of the history of Israel. And in these three kings, we see great qualities, positive qualities of Israel, but also that which led to the downfall of Israel. And while on the one hand, we know, for example, Saul to be that tragic figure of the first book of Samuel, he was a man of great distinction. He stood head and shoulders over everybody. He was tall, he was handsome, he was good looking, he was attractive, and he was a great warrior. But by the end of the first book of Samuel, he had fallen. And 
by the halfway mark of the first book of Samuel, he had fallen out of favor with God. Why? Because when God had told him to put under the ban everything of his enemies, which means he destroys them, man, woman, child, flocks, and objects, Saul disobeyed God specifically in the context of worship. Instead of destroying all the flocks of the enemy that he defeated, he decided, I will take their choicest flocks and offer them up as sacrifice to God. And Samuel called Saul out for that, saying, does God want sacrifice more than obedience? And thereby, Saul lost everything because he exercised disobedience specifically in the context of worship. He disobeyed God specifically in the context of worshiping God, presuming that God would be pleased with his disobedience because he did it in the context of worship. And then naturally he was replaced by David. And David also began very strongly. He was a ruddy youth, the youngest of his siblings. He was hailed in the story as the one who defeated Goliath and who became a great military leader in defending Israel against especially the Philistines. Being threatened by Saul, who saw him as a threat to his reign, the first book of Samuel ends with David at the head of Israel following the suicide of Saul in battle after he was mortally wounded and the destruction of Saul's family. His heirs, David's good friend Jonathan, was killed. And so Saul's family was basically wiped out in battle by the enemies of Israel, leaving David as the strong warlord to lead Israel into the future as its new king. I'm scratching the surface here, but the story goes on to talk about David, and we know of David in the Bible. He was the great king of Israel. He united the 12 tribes into one kingdom. He brought the capital as well as the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He was the author of the Psalms, according to tradition. He was a great poet. Being a shepherd, he was very much as a king, shepherd to Israel. And we have a very idealistic view of David. But the history that's presented in the book of Samuel his rise to power at the end of the second of the first book of Samuel, and then his subsequent reign in the second book of Samuel, plays out very much like you would see in The Godfather, in which the younger warrior rises in power and eventually replaces the king by the end of the first book of Samuel. And then in the second book of Samuel, we have David, the proverbial godfather of the story, at the height of his power, and ultimately falling out of favor with God, and ending his reign tragically when all is said and done. And very much the second book of Samuel plays out like The Godfather Part Two, that well-known movie from the 70s, in which, like Michael Corleone, is at the height of his influence and power, eventually alienates himself from everybody, his wife, his half-brother, his friends, even as he goes to destroy his enemies. And he's left a broken isolated man at the end of that film. In many ways, we see that similar story regarding David, because at the beginning of the second book of Samuel, David is at the height of his power, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, establishing the capital in Jerusalem. Nathan comes to him when he wants to build, uh, when David wants to build the temple, and tells him, no, he spilled too much blood with his hands in his life. His son will be the one to build the temple, but 
it is to David that God promises that his people, his family, would always remain on the throne in Jerusalem. So he is riding high. And then what happens? He commits adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband killed by pulling back his troops when they go forth in battle, leaving Uriah the Hittite exposed to being killed. And it is at that point that we see David's eventual downfall. And hopefully we all know the story of the parable of the of the lamb that Nathan told him, in which David, in his anger, recklessly says, whoever has done this will pay back the lamb fourfold that he stole from the poor shepherd in the parable. And of course, that dramatic moment when Nathan says, you are the man. But if you look at the rest of the second book of Samuel, David's curse plays out on himself for the rest of the second book of Samuel. Because first, he says, the lamb shall be paid back fourfold. He had Uriah the Hittite killed in battle. And the fourfold curse plays out for the rest of the second book of Samuel. First, the child that was born with, from Bathsheba, from his affair with Bathsheba, dies. And then, two of his children... Amnon, his son, is infatuated with Tamar, his daughter, the daughter of David, and he rapes her. And she eventually loses her honor because of her brother's behavior. And in revenge for his sister, Absalom, another one of David's sons, kills Amnon. So that's three of David's children that either die or are dishonored. And the last part of the second book of Samuel is about the rebellion that Absalom conducts against his father, in which he is eventually killed as he hangs with his hair caught in the terebinth after the final battle in which his forces are defeated. And there's that great lamentation of David, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom. Because not only has David lost Absalom, but four of his children have now been killed or dishonored. That fourfold curse that David recklessly declared is now played out on himself as a result of his affair with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband. And so the rest of the second book of Samuel is in many ways the gradual downfall of David until by the end of the second book of Samuel, he's such a broken man at the death of his son, Absalom, that there really is nothing he could do that is pleasing to God. One of the last things he does is try to conduct a census of his kingdom, and that displeases God, who sends at at David's behest, he gives David a choice of punishment, and David chooses the pestilence, and that too is devastating to David to see what that pestilence has done to his people. So by the end of the second book of Samuel, we have the downfall, in many ways, of David. While he still retains the throne, he ends his life a tragic figure, much like Saul. While Saul committed um, disobedience in the context of worship, David committed adultery and murder. Saul lost everything. David was severely punished, but maintained his grip on the throne as God had promised he would. He, of course, is followed by Solomon, who is known as the great wise king in Israel. Of course, the story of how Solomon 
maintains his grip on the throne is one of great bloodshed and death and intrigue, palace intrigue. But he is traditionally known as the father of the wisdom tradition of Israel. He is accredited with the wisdom books of the Bible. And he is the pinnacle of Israelite wisdom, which obviously was a part of the history of Israel. That tradition of wisdom is something that is celebrated, and we see it emulated in the wisdom books of the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Wisdom, Sirach, and there's probably one or two I'm forgetting at this point. But all these books are from the wisdom tradition of which Solomon is the great father of Israelite wisdom. And we know the stories of his judgment with the infant child that two mothers are claiming is theirs. And he says, cut the child in half. And in that, before cutting the child in half, he's able to determine which mother is the true mother. It is under Solomon that the temple in Jerusalem was built, in which the Ark of the Covenant was housed. But it was after the death of Solomon that under his son Rehoboam, a rebellion took place and ten of the twelve tribes in the kingdom of Israel broke away. Now, why did that happen? Because God said it would, and God brought this about as a result of the second half of Solomon's life. Because while Solomon at the beginning of his reign was the epitome of wisdom, you keep reading the first book of Kings, and you see that the end of Solomon's reign was one of great foolishness. A paradoxical character was Solomon. The epitome of great wisdom, which for Israel was adherence to the law, following the law of God. Read the first Psalm. You see an example of what emulates wisdom and what emulates foolishness. And Solomon was that great figure of wisdom, but also a great figure of foolishness. And so what do we see in the history as it is told through these prophets after the Babylonian exile? After the Babylonian exile, in looking back to tell these stories about the kingdom of Israel, what is it we learn? What is it we come to understand in these just these first three kings, let alone the rest of the kings of Israel, who were varying degrees of virtue and vice grace and foolishness and wisdom, we see just in the first three kings of Israel examples of great virtue and examples of great foolishness, triumph and tragedy. Saul was handsome, a great warrior, but was vain when it came to disobeying God in the midst of worship. David, the epitome of Israelite power, their enemies had been overthrown. He had established stability in the kingdom of Israel and was that great shepherd, that great father of the Psalms, that great poet. But he also fell into sin with his adultery with Bathsheba and his downfall led to his being a broken king at the end of the second book of Samuel and Solomon epitomizing the tradition of wisdom literature and grandeur and wealth of Israel, eventually falling into decadence and foolishness by the end of his reign. And in these three, we see a composite of the history of Israel that the four books of Kings, one and two Samuel, one and two Kings, and then subsequently Chronicles, but especially those first four books, are 
presenting as they then complete the history of the kings of Israel leading to the exile. A once great kingdom personified and emulated in these first three kings also became a kingdom of foolishness, paganism, infidelity to the covenant, sinfulness that eventually led to its downfall. And we see that in these three kings. Solomon, yes, he's a figure of wisdom, but also a tremendous figure of foolishness at the end of his reign. David, a figure of virtue and strength and military might, but also eventually a figure of sin, scandal, that eventually led to his downfall and the death of some of his own children, and that first king, King Saul, who fell out of favor with God because of his disobedience in the context of worship. And all this, going right back to the very beginning of the monarchy, in the words of Samuel, in the first book of Samuel, when he warns the people, this is what will happen when you are given a king. This is what he will do, and this is where he will lead your nation. This is what will become of the kingdom. And so looking back and writing that history through the hindsight of faith, not mythology, but faith, the guild prophets take these historical figures of Israel and retell their story as a cautionary tale for the people coming back from the Babylonian exile to say, this is what happened before, and this is what got us where we were in exile. Let's not emulate that as we come back to Israel, come back to the promised land, and reestablish who we were, albeit under the protection of the Persian Empire that allowed them to return from the exile started by the Babylonian Empire. So why is this important? Well, later in the wisdom literature, we see, for example, in the book of Sirach, we see in, uh, such as the 47th book of Sirach and other places in the wisdom literature, as the wisdom writers are speaking of, for example, David, they speak of him being a great beacon of light in the history of Israel. He was like a great sacrifice, uh, the choicest of the sacrifices, the choicest of the citizens and kings in Israel. And it speaks of how God's will still was brought about in and through this man. It's because of that wisdom literature that we can look through that lens of Israelite wisdom, and despite the flawed character of David, still see God's will being brought about in his appointment, despite his shortcomings as a man. We can see God's will in bringing forth the wisdom of Israel in Solomon, despite the fact that later in his reign he fell into foolishness. As Christians, we certainly see in David God establishing the reign of David, of which Jesus would be the fulfillment. And we see through the lens of Israelite wisdom, Jewish wisdom, that through this history of these characters and these kings, God's will still does take place, but we also learn the lesson of these characters, even if the stories themselves are not completely historical as we understand history today. So how do we deal with that? How do we understand that as a people of faith today? Well, 
is it wrong for us to recognize God's will in our own nation, in our own historical figures? We're living at a time, especially in the United States here, where the heroes of our history are being torn down by political correctness, by a woke mentality, in which some of our greatest leaders and founders of our country, the United States, are being discredited because they were flawed. And because they were flawed, many people believe we should stop teaching about their greatness and only focus on their flaws. Let's learn a lesson from the wisdom and the prophetic retelling of Israelite history. David was a great king. Solomon was a great king. But they were flawed. And the Bible tells the story of those flaws. The adultery and murder that David committed. The allowance for paganism and the foolishness emulated by King Solomon, whose multiplicity of wives, foreign wives, exposed his nation to pagan deities, leading them to infidelity to the covenant of the worship of the one God of Israel. Do we therefore, do we therefore completely erase the history of David because of his sinfulness and because of his downfall and his flaws? Do we completely erase the wisdom once emulated by Solomon because of his later foolishness? Do we completely erase the history of Saul because of his disobedience that ultimately ruined him his disobedience to God in the context of worship? Or do we tell those stories historically? Yes, but through that wisdom, understand God's will for his people and how that was carried out with them and in many cases in spite of them. In the same way, do we completely erase the history of our founding fathers because of their flaws? Things that we look back, just as we look back on David and Solomon and Saul, with disdain and with disapproval, while at the same time recognizing their greatness in the history of our nation. Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, President of the United States, whose leadership helped to put this nation on the course that brought us to where we are today, but helped to establish it firmly as a nation in its early years, starting with its independence and then later as its third president. But yes, he was flawed, a man of contradictions, a great scientific mind, but a man who owned slaves may have had an affair with one and had children with that slave. Do we erase him from history because of that, or do we just include that as we also celebrate his greatness as a founding father? And we're living at a time now in which, yes, we are recognizing the flaws of many great historical figures. But there are those who believe we should completely erase them from history and stop teaching how great they were because of those flaws. Or a more balanced approach, as we see from the lessons of the development of scriptures, the retelling of that history, and understanding that history through the lens of wisdom, the good and the bad, of great historical figures of Israel, we too, through that lens of wisdom, can recognize that through our leaders, perhaps... We can see God's hand in our own history as the United States. We too have great but flawed leaders. 
we can move forward in understanding those leaders and perhaps a deeper understanding of God's presence and movement of our own history and God's presence and movement in our own nation by the understanding that we see in the scriptures. While it's not historical as we understand history, it does present the history of Israel in a way in which we truly can learn from the history, how Israel can learn from its history. And so as we go forth as a nation, with all the debates that are involved with the history of this nation, let's not completely cancel out the great figures of history simply because they were flawed, but recognizing their flaws also recognize their greatness. And in that greatness, the greatness of George Washington, of Thomas Jefferson, of James Madison, of Abraham Lincoln, and so on. We can perhaps recognize how God is looking out for our nation and how even the greatness of a nation can be carried out by flawed individuals who are not perfect, but who are the right people for the right time at that period in history. And we come to that by recognizing even the history of Israel. Great leaders were also flawed, made terrible mistakes, but in them, through the lens of wisdom, we still recognize God's will and God's plan being played out for Israel. Let's recognize that in how our history is played out. And as people of faith, strive to recognize the presence and the movement of God, and we pray that God is with our nation, will continue to be with our nation, even as we recognize how he has been in the past, through our history, through our flawed leaders. And so there, I hope, is my successful combination of the theme of this podcast, Faith, Hope, and History, talking about the history of Israel, relating it to our country, faith, that's inserted in our understanding of that history to bring us hope as a people of this nation, just as it brought hope to the people of Israel in understanding their history and telling that story for future generations who can learn from that history. The good, the bad, the flaws, the virtues, the vices, the grace, the sin. Ultimately, God's hand in the history of Israel in the history of this nation, and we pray continuing to be present as our nation and the nations of the world move forward into history. So those are my thoughts for this week. I hope it made sense, and I hope you found it stimulating. Thank you for listening. Visit my YouTube channel where I post my homilies and where I have daily reflections Monday through Saturday throughout the season of Lent. Thanks again for listening, and with any luck, I will talk to you again soon.